Welcome back to Search for DOS. In this episode, we meet David Harris. As I was thinking about how best to introduce David, I landed on the words of the late Israeli president and prime minister Shimon Peres, who described David as, quote, the foreign minister of the Jewish people. For 32 years, David led the American Jewish Committee, AJC, stepping down just this past year. AJC was established in 1906, making it one of the oldest Jewish advocacy organizations in the world. And as you'll soon learn, David's leadership is pivotal in strengthening AJC and its mission. AJC is a wonderful organization. It combines two of my passions, engagement with the international community and my Jewish roots. Over the past year, I've had the privilege of traveling with AJC leadership to the UAE and Japan. David was on the UAE trip, which provided me the opportunity to witness David in action and get a glimpse of the passion and talent he has for advocacy and diplomacy. Even though David was not on the Japan trip, I saw his fingerprints everywhere. The foundation David built from all of his years traveling back and forth to Japan facilitated the incredible reception we received from leaders in Tokyo, Kyoto, and Suruga. David has been honored 20 times by foreign governments, including Japan, which makes him the most decorated American Jewish organizational leader in U.S. history. In this episode, we cover a lot, including his approach to building deep and trusting relationships with world leaders, why domestically it is important to pursue a nonpartisan approach, why he dedicated so much of his time to building a relationship with Japan, and the argument he made to Japanese leaders for why they should stop adhering to the Arab economic boycott against Israel and how his argument became a model for Jewish advocacy going forward. Anti-Semitism, specifically how it has morphed since 1940, why Israel is so important and how best to engage with those who have unfavorable views of it, how early on he identified an opportunity to build deep and broad peace with nations in the Middle East, and his prediction for how the circle of peace will grow, how his mother, who was a Holocaust survivor, shaped him, and how she spent her life asking why she, uh, what she could give back to America. His approach to writing and his favorite Yiddish word and the world leader he considers most impressive. This episode is truly a masterclass on advocacy and diplomacy, and I hope you take away from it as much as I have. A quick note to say that we ran into a few tech issues in the first part of our recording, we, we were able to salvage all of the audio. However, there might be a few minor volume hiccups. Now, I give you David Harris. David Harris, welcome to Search for DOS. My pleasure to be here. As I was preparing for our conversation, I thought of the quote most often attributed to Mark Twain. The two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you realize why you were born. Observing your life, it seems like you're the type of person who experienced that second day. Is that a fair assumption? Well, actually, your question prompts me to think about my 
late mother um, who survived the Holocaust, and I'm an only child. And when she was asked um, why, why does she think she survived the Holocaust when so many around her did not, she would answer, because it was her destiny to give birth to me uh, and to see me play a role in the Jewish world in the post-Holocaust period. So I can't tell you <laughs> if it was uh, divinely inspired or not. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't see my, did not see myself going into the Jewish world, but lo and behold, I did. Stayed for 47 years. Uh, and I found my purpose in being. So maybe in a very real sense, um, I validated my mother's belief as to why she survived. So you spent over 30 years leading AJC, representing the Jewish people, at least most. What did you learn through that experience, representing the Jewish people? Well, I, this is actually a, a, a delicate one, Tyler. Uh, I never claimed to represent the Jewish people. And if I had, I would have been assaulted <laughs> uh, from various directions. Um, I got to represent uh, the American Jewish Committee and its constituency on the global stage. Uh, and I did it with, um, with uh, a great deal of, of, of gratitude and humility. Uh, and AJC, frankly speaking, was, uh, was a great organization to represent because I always felt that uh, on the sort of on the Jewish playing field, uh, AJC distinguished itself by a great deal of, of dignity and sophistication and integrity and independence and openness. Uh, so in that respect, um, I learned a lot about the playing field, about how to represent an organization, about how to engage world leaders, about how to at times change minds and actually create new policy directions, all of which were very, very, very exciting. So much of your work in that role was building relationships with the leaders of nations. If you could distill some of those learnings down in terms of leadership and power, what are some of those? Well, first, um, I think that people who go into this field um, need to understand something about foreign policy, diplomacy, international relations, uh, ideally foreign languages, foreign cultures. Uh, this, this is not a field for, for newbies or for the uninitiated. Not if, you're, if you plan to be serious, number one. Number two, um, understand that to build a long-term relationship you can't do it in one meeting uh, or with one, uh, with one argument uh, or one talking point. Uh, building a long-term relationship requires a, a lot of investment and effort. It also requires a great deal of discretion. So for those who want to rush to social media uh, or to the press release machine uh, after the first meeting, don't be surprised if there's not a second or a third meeting because that's not the way long-term relationships are normally built. Number three, remember to build a, a, a serious long-term relationship, it has to be a two-way relationship. 
the world leaders aren't meeting you as a Jewish representative solely for the purpose of hearing your agenda and uh, acceding to your requests. They're meeting you because they feel that there's value for them in the meeting. So understand what their priorities are and look for places where you as a Jewish representative can agree with their priorities, support their priorities without in any way um, violating your own norms and values. Uh, and fourth, um, be very specific. Uh, the more you create a laundry list of things that you're looking for, the less likely you are to get a positive response. So understand the country you're talking to, understand the way that country views the world, including Israel, the Jewish people, tailor your own priorities accordingly, and then zero in with passion, with intelligence, with integrity on, on what your asks are. And I've seen uh, in a span of 47 years in Jewish diplomacy, as you said, 32 at the helm of AJC, uh, it can work. Not always, of course, but it can work. It can move mountains. And I believe we move mountains. One of the elements of AJC that attracted me to it is its decision to be fiercely bipartisan. Over the years, is that something that uh, became harder to achieve? And what was your strategy to make sure that AJC didn't uh, veer away from that core tenet? Look, there were times that it's been more challenging, not just recently, but in the past. But I, I believe it's absolutely essential to successful Jewish advocacy. And I, I learned the lesson um, years before I, I joined AJC, uh, and specifically during the Yom Kippur War of 1973, when um, Israel was caught off guard. Uh, the war was much longer and fiercer than Israel might have anticipated. There was a desperate need for spare parts, uh, for a resupply of weaponry. And the only country in the world that was potentially able to give it to Israel was the United States. But at the time, in October 1973, the U.S. was led by Richard Nixon. And he was highly unpopular among most American Jews. I, I don't remember the exact number, but easily 70, 75% of American Jews actively disliked him, if not despised him. And of course, there was the shadow of Watergate and everything else going on. But it came down to Israel's survival. The Israeli military was performing valiantly, but it needed the weaponry. And without that weaponry, who knows what would have happened. So that's where I learned my lesson in bipartisanship. I was no fan of Richard Nixon at the time, like most of my peers between the Vietnam War, Watergate, and his uh, image as Tricky Dick. Uh, he was not my favorite candidate, but I cared deeply about Israel. Uh, it needed to survive. And so I understood that if I want to be a Jewish advocate, which was still in the future, at least in my life, then I, I had to fundamentally become a nonpartisan uh, because who knew who would be in the White House at times of crisis? Here was one example. Other examples followed. The whole Soviet Jewry struggle, in which I was deeply involved for many, many years, depended on the, the president of the United States being supportive, whether he was a Republican or a Democrat. 
we need the support of both sides of the aisle. And the last thing the world we could afford was to see what we're seeing to some degree in European countries, where when one party's in power, things are great with the Jewish community and with, and with relations with Israel. But when another party's in power, things can go south, especially with Israel. Uh, and in the United States, we've had that bipartisan support for the U.S.-Israel relationship from 1948 until now. It's becoming more challenged, but I think it's no less important, if not vital. You recently were honored by the Japanese government with a with their highest honor, the Order of the Rising Sun, Gold and Silver Star. What is it about Japan that drew you to the nation and what makes it so distinctive and important? Well, I remember very, very vividly picking up the New York Times, which I got every day at our door in the late 1980s and being sort of blindsided by some articles by Clyde Haberman, uh, who happens to be Maggie Haberman's father. And he was at the time the Times correspondent in Tokyo. And he wrote a series of articles about the popularity of anti-Semitic books uh, being published and being sold uh, in mainstream bookshops in Japan. <laughs> and where did this come from? Why? What could have prompted it? And here again, I, I think you can distinguish AJC from, from the crowd because the reaction of many was simply to go to you know the press release writers and to, to slam Japan for for this, I understand the instinct, but HAC took that extra time to try and understand why Japan, why now, and most importantly, uh, what could be done about it, mindful that Japan had its own unique and distinctive culture and society. And so um, <laughs> we embarked on, uh, first of all, a lot of meetings with a lot of Japanese Japanologists in the United States, by the way, a number of whom turned out to be Jewish and very sympathetic. And then a series of trips uh, from 1988. I think I personally traveled to Japan on behalf of AJC well over 30 times. And there were lots of other trips in which I was not a participant. I think you were on one of them, Tyler. So that probably pushed the total number of trips in this period to well over 50. And um, we did it patiently, we did it perseverantly, because we understood that it wasn't just the, the phenomenon of these anti-Semitic books, which by the way, largely vanished. There, was a, there were two bigger issues that we discovered along the way. One, Japan is a hugely important country on the global stage. And a global organization like AJC needed to be in regular touch with, with, uh, with leaders in Japan. Again, because Japan played such a consequential role on the global stage. Number one and number two, when we started, we, we, we learned that Japan was pretty strictly adhering to the Arab economic boycott against Israel. And we were outraged by this. And so we, we, factored into our trips and into our advocacy, um, this issue about the Arab economic boycott. And the way we framed it, and, and I think, if I may say so, this became a model for Jewish advocacy. And 
It was acknowledged by the, the Japanese foreign ministry itself. Um, it was acknowledged um, in, uh, in in several books by by historians of the of the relationship that we framed it as to why um, ending the adherence to the Arab boycott was not in our interest. That was obvious. We're friends of Israel. Uh, we're Jews. But why was it in Japan's interest? And that's the argument that we made in the Foreign Ministry of Japan, in the Ministry of, of International Trade and Industry, uh, in the uh, Keidan Ren, which let's call it the Chamber of Commerce of Japan, very powerful, in, Jet, uh, in JETRO, which was the um, exporting arm of, of Japanese industry. In all of these places where we eventually gained access, we kept saying, look, you're the world's second largest economy which at the time they were, they were ahead of China. And you are denying yourself access to one of the most innovative, dynamic economies in the world, Israel, because you're succumbing to pressure put on you by the Arab world that threatens you with this and that. And we're here to tell you that, number one, it's our firm belief that you will benefit from an open relationship with Israel. It will help you, Japan, your economy, um, to develop that relationship. Two, you have an interest in the Middle East. You want stability in the Middle East for reasons of oil and, 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 and other um, items. You need to be talking to all sides, not just to one side. Uh, and, and, and number three, we are here to tell you that it's our firm belief from experience that the day you announce an end to the Arab boycott, you're going to get a demarche from the Arab ambassadors in Tokyo, and they're going to pound the table and they're going to threaten you. And the day after, it's going to return to business as usual. Why? Because they need Japan. You are a consequential country. You are the world's second largest economy. You're producing amazingly good products. They need you. And I have to tell you, Tyler, my predictive skills um, in sports, in the stock market, in real estate are lousy. In fact, if you did the exact opposite of whatever I predict, you'd be very successful. But on this one, we were a thousand percent right. And if you fast forward, from early 1990s to today, that's about 30 years, little more. The Israel-Japan bilateral relationship um, is going through the roof in every sphere. There's a compatibility between the economies. Japan is setting up research and development centers throughout Israel. The car industry, the tech industry, the electronics industry, you name it, they're all going gangbusters because there is a fundamental compatibility. As for the Arab boycott, it vanished the day after the day marsh and the table pounding. It went back to business as usual, exactly because the Arab world needs Japan, just like much of the rest of the world needs Japan. So I think it, it's, a, it's a good example of successful diplomacy. It was quiet. It was persistent. It was patient. It was respectful. It was discreet. And it was framed not as, as to why it's in the interest of a Jewish organization, but why it's in, in the core interest of a country as important um, and as complex as Japan.
during all these travels, you inevitably confronted anti-Semitism yourself or stories of it in those nations. What is anti-Semitism and is it any different than it looked like in 1940? Well, there, 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 to this day, unfortunately, there's still lots of disputes over what is anti-Semitism, but I think the what's called the IRA definition, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition in which AJC did have a hand when it was formulated, I think is uh, arguably the single best definition. It's the definition we adhere to. It's the definition that over 30 countries formally uh, adhere to and lots of universities and others. But essentially it comes down to um, hatred of Jews. Uh, and what's different from 1940 is in 1940, there was no state of Israel. Since 1948, thankfully, blessedly, there is a state of Israel. At the same time, it's given anti-Semites a kind of new tactic, which they didn't have before 1948. And that new tactic is, hmm, well, let's see. Hitler gave anti-Semitism a really bad name because maybe we modern-day anti-Semites don't like Jews, but it's hard to defend <laughs> anti-Semitism when it can lead to Auschwitz and Birkenau and the gas chambers and the crematoria um, and the genocide um, of six million Jews, including one and a half million Jewish children. So Israel, for many modern-day anti-Semites, has become a kind of um, masquerade and you'll hear the line again and again essentially along the lines of oh no some of our best friends are Jews but we happen to hate Israel and ascribe to Israel all kinds of, of evil demonic um, attributes interestingly those evil demonic attributes were, were given to Jews by anti-Semites for centuries right I mean Jews poisoned the wells, Jews spread disease, Jews uh, created economic crises for their own advantage. Uh, go down the list, Jews uh, kidnapped Christian children on the, uh, on the eve of Passover to use their blood in the baking of matzah. These were all these demonic, evil, conspiratorial theories that kind of uh, buttressed anti-Semitism. Now, a lot of those very same theories are ascribed to Israel. Israel has become, in the eyes of anti-Semites, this demonic, evil a nation that can do no right and that spreads, um, pollutes the globe with, with, uh, with, with, uh, with, with its demonic forces. So on the one hand, that's what's changed is the introduction of Israel and Zionism, the self-determination of the Jewish people, the movement for self-determination, that's what's changed, I think, principally in the, in, in the, in the toolbox of anti-Semites. Conversely, conversely, I think what's different from 1940, Tyler, is also precisely the same answer, but in a positive way, Israel. In 1940, or let's go back to 1933, Hitler took power in January 1933. 
by March 1933, he had total control over Germany. He could bypass the, the, the parliament, the Bundestag. So during those seven years, from 33 until 1940, the Jews of Europe were largely trapped. Uh, despite some hand-wringing by a few governments about persecution of Jews, the tragic fact of the matter is that very few countries, including the United States of America, were willing to take large numbers of Jews. That's a demonstrable fact. And Jews were trapped at a time when Hitler basically teased the world and said, if you care so much about the Jews, take them. And in a way, the most powerfully symbolic answer came with the fate of the ship, the St. Louis which in 1939 carried some 930 European Jews fleeing Hitler's tyranny, first went to Cuba, where only a handful were allowed to disembark, then anchored off the coast of Florida. The passengers said they could see the skyline of Miami Beach. Not one single passenger from that ship was allowed to disembark in the United States, not one. Look at America's immigration policy these days. Not one. Canada was approached and asked, will you take these refugees? Canada said a flat no, no. It's hard to believe in today's world, Tyler, but that ship had to return to Europe with all of the passengers because neither Canada nor the United States nor Cuba, except for a very few, would take any of the passengers. Why do I say this? Because in 1939, when that ship sailed, had there been an Israel, a sovereign Israel, that ship would have been able to go through the Mediterranean, dock in, say, Haifa, and those Jews would have found a safe haven because there would have been one nation on earth which would have opened its arms and welcomed the fleeing Jews. Other nations were not interested. They were simply not interested. And that's the fundamental difference on the flip side in the answer to anti-Semitism. Thank goodness. Thank goodness today for Ukrainian Jews. Thank goodness for Russian Jews who are fleeing Putin. Thank goodness for the Ethiopian Jews who were fleeing persecution there. And before them, thank goodness for the Jews from Arab countries. Thank goodness for the Jews who fled the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. Thank goodness there was and there is in Israel because there wasn't in the 1930s when Jews could have been saved. In 2018, you wrote, in the final analysis, the story of Israel is the wondrous realization of a 3,500 year link among a land of faith a language, a people, and a vision. It is an unparalleled story of tenacity and determination, of courage and renewal. And it is ultimately a metaphor for the triumph of enduring hope over the temptation of despair. That is a wonderful description. What are the descriptions that you hear that don't align with that, that uh, you find most frustrating? And how have you found... Uh, what strategies have you found most useful to counter those alternative views? Well, the 24-7 Israel haters 
try to make an industry out of uh, demonizing, delegitimizing um, the modern state of Israel. And at the core, and you'll hear it even from some people in the U.S. Congress, like Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, at the core, their argument is Jews are nothing more than outsiders, colonialists, settlers. They will never acknowledge what is an undeniable, demonstrable fact. Jews are indigenous, indigenous to the region. This land is the wellspring of the Jewish people. You cannot separate the Jewish people from the stories of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you cannot separate the Jewish people from Jerusalem. You cannot separate the people from the fact that it was King David and King Solomon and, and the first temple and the second temple, which were not located in Poland or in Brooklyn. All of this story took place smack in the middle of what we're talking about. So I find it particularly funny that some of these 24-7 haters, including those in the Congress, will send out, for example, you know, messages to their Jewish constituents, uh, wishing them a happy Hanukkah or a happy Passover, without even making the mental connection that, that Hanukkah celebrates uh, the miracle of the oil, where? Not in Detroit, Michigan, not in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but in Jerusalem. And the story of Passover is not just some nice set of songs and, and, and uh, uh, that, that people sing. It's the story of, of the Jewish exodus from Egypt with a destination. It took 40 years, but with a destination. And that destination is known to one and all today as what we call Israel. So the idea that you can you can try and use this kind of this this um, this, this new language of uh, uh, post the post truth world in which we allegedly live and assert that Jews are are outsiders. Jews have seized lands. Jews have no 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 reason to be there. Or, by the way, that this is all about now again to use the new language. This is all about a white supremacy movement. Of of, of all of this is completely absurd, Tyler. But it has a life of its own because the anti-Semites need to cling to this language. They're not interested in the facts. They're not interested in historical truths. Uh, and they, they need to undermine this extraordinary success story called Israel. What's the answer? Well, the best answer of all is for people to go and see Israel for themselves. They don't have to believe you or me, although I hope they will. Um, you know, I come at this in very good faith. And much as I, I love Israel, and, and I do, and I care about it, I love peace every bit as much and would hope for nothing more in my lifetime than to see the circle of peace between Israel and the Arab world grow from the six countries today, which is fantastic, to double and triple that number. 
but let people see Israel for themselves. Let, let them see whether Israel is this, quote, colonial settler country, this, quote, white supremacy country. No, what they'll find, or what they'll find, and I've now been there well over 100 times, they'll find one of the most diverse, multicultural, multi-faith, pulsating societies on the planet, bar none. They will see hundreds of mosques with Muslims praying freely uh, and without any interruption or inhibition. They will see Christians praying freely in the many churches. They will see um, black Jews from Ethiopia and elsewhere. They will see that the majority of Israeli Jews are from North Africa and the Middle East. People like my wife from Libya people who were expelled from their countries for being Jews, people who, who formed the forgotten refugee population that no one wants to talk about because it's another inconvenient truth. 850,000 Jews expelled from Arab countries. No one today asks the question, why is there not a single Jew left in Libya? Why is there not a single Jew left in Algeria? Why are there no Jews left in Iraq? in Syria, in Yemen, as if this, this, were, this were somehow irrelevant. Why are there over 2 million Arabs in the state of Israel when there were no Jews left in the Arab world to speak of? So they'll see a lot of things, Tyler. They'll see a country that yearns for peace because Israel was not born to live in permanent conflict. It was born to finally achieve a good night's sleep for all of its citizens. And yet Israelis continue to have to serve in the military, both men and women, and then in reserve duty. And when Israelis give birth to new children, one of the first questions they ask is, when my child is 18, will she or he have to go and serve in the military and put their lives on the line to defend this country or not? And they'll see a country that is much smaller than they might imagine, as small as the state of New Jersey or the enormous country of Wales. Uh, that's what they'll see with Hamas and Gaza on the southern border, with Hezbollah on the northern border in Lebanon, with Iranian uh, troops and manufacturing facilities on the northern border with Syria with Iran itself within striking distance of, of, of Israel today, that's Israel's neighborhood. I wish its neighbors were Norway and Sweden or Canada uh, or Japan, <laughs> since we spoke about Japan. But, but visitors will see something totally different than the, than the lies and the half-truths and the deception that they see regularly on social media and elsewhere generated by this 24-7 Israel-hating um, production process. So go, go. Uh, and from my experience, first-timers are stunned pleasantly by what they see because they weren't prepared for it um, in advance. It's a beautiful country. It's a diverse country. It's an open country. It's a democratic country. It's a peace-seeking country. It's a multi-faith country. It's, it's an innovative country. 
It's an ancient country. It's a cutting edge country. Uh, and it's a tiny country. Go see for yourself. Speaking of Israel's neighborhood, a nation that AJC has built a relationship over a long period of time, but now it's very much um, public, is the United Arab Emirates. This is something that you dedicated a lot of time uh, to. Could you talk about that experience? And was there any difference, major differences in building relationships with the leaders of the UAE than all the other nations you work to deepen relationships with over your 30 years? So we've been working for decades, very quietly, very quietly, um, out of the limelight, um, exploring throughout the region, the Middle East, North Africa, the larger Muslim majority world, extending it to Africa and Asia, uh, where are the potential openings? Who, who are the potential leaders uh, who want to put conflict behind and build a brighter future? So for over 30 years, we've been traveling um, uh, and uh, to some unlikely places, and we've been planting seeds, and we've been helping to identify those leaders who genuinely, authentically want to get beyond this permanent conflict and who see Israel not as a permanent enemy, but as a potential asset to the region. And the UAE, which does not share a border with Israel, Bahrain next door being another, uh, were, were very obvious candidates. And other countries like Morocco, the same, again, distant from Israel, but open. And what we're seeing now, Tyler, to fast forward, is a, a totally different kind of peace. Uh, I don't want to take anything at all away from the historic transformational peace with Egypt in 1979. That changed everything, thankfully. Or the historic transformational peace with Jordan in 1994. Same thing changed an awful lot but both of those peace agreements were essentially um, leader to leader what we now have with the uae and with bahrain and with morocco is a much broader thicker and deeper peace that goes down to to a very large degree to the street and you saw it from the moment the Abraham Accords were announced. You saw this burst of excitement and enthusiasm on both sides, Israel and the new Arab partners. They were hungry. The number of flights that were introduced, the number of partnership agreements with, uh, with businesses, with research institutes, with universities, the number of cultural programs going back and forth, they all exploded. So it wasn't just a piece of the leaders. It was a piece of the nations. And it, 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 it went down from the top down and it went from the bottom up and, and it crossed horizontally. Uh, that's the piece we've been yearning for. That's the real piece. This has become the model. And I, I want to believe that 
we're, we're not finished yet. When I say we, I don't just mean we proprietarily, a few of us, uh, the peacemakers, the peacemakers in Israel, in the United States, um, and in the Arab world are not done yet. There are some countries that haven't yet signed a normalization deal or a peace deal, but are already engaged in in relations. A little bit above the surface, largely below the surface, but they're also watching. They're they're considering how how far to go at what speed. Uh, but it's happening. Look, uh, the New York Times had a story just a couple of days ago, a front page story, the upper right hand corner, the, the most important part of the front page, which talked about the U.S. trying to help Israel and Saudi Arabia move closer with Secretary of State Tony Blinken, uh, very centrally involved. Uh, we're not there yet, but but it's no secret that Israel and Saudi Arabia have been talking to each other, both directly and through uh, uh, through Washington. And that's covered in the article and similar articles. And it's not just Saudi Arabia. There are several other countries that are sort of watching. They're, they're in the flirtation stage. They're, they're in the exploratory stage. But I, I very much believe, and it's not just wishful thinking, though it is wishful thinking too, I very much believe that over time, we're going to see that circle of peace grow. And not out of any sudden love for the Jewish people or Zionism, though I think there'll be greater appreciation of the fact that Israel, Israel is here to stay. Israelis are indigenous. Jews are indigenous to the region. They're not outsiders. But this is out of self-interest, Tyler. This is driven by self-interest. For countries like Saudi Arabia that are scared to death of Iran, and notwithstanding this recent agreement, they're still scared to death of Iran and who've kind of lost hope that the United States would defend them after the disastrous 2015 uh, JCPOA, uh, the deal with Iran. They look to Israel as the only other country that could potentially stand with them to confront Iran, to stand with them against Iran. That was a starting point for a number of them when they felt that the United States was rethinking its own strategic considerations in the region and maybe even beginning to back away from the region itself. But the more they got to know Israel, the more they discovered it's not just about that security umbrella. It's also about Israeli technology, Israeli innovation, Israeli uh, water breakthroughs, food security. After all, Israel comes from the same region. It faces the same issues of climate change, of, 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 of extreme heat, of, of an arid zone uh, uh, a climate. Uh, and Israel, <laughs> a country that many predicted would not survive because of a lack of water, has now, in 2023, become a net exporter of water. That's the kind of breakthrough, that's the kind of human capital that Israel represents today, and its neighbors see it, and they want a piece of it for their own survival. So I'm going to predict that not only will we see a continued widening of the circle of peace, 
maybe not as quickly as we all might like, but it's going to happen. But I'll predict something else. I'll predict that over time, you're going to see a growing kind of regional network built around arguably two issues, environment and energy. And I'm drawing on what happened after the Second World War in Western Europe, where in, in an effort to prevent another world war, visionaries led by the French Foreign Minister Robert Schumann and his aide, Jean Monnet, came up with the concept of the coal and steel community and bound together six countries, especially France and West Germany, but also including Italy and the three Benelux countries, in a consortium built around coal and steel, but beginning to create an interdependency, a cooperation among the six, which would provide an alternative to war. And that coal and steel community and those six countries have evolved today into 27 countries. We call it the European Union with a common currency, with open borders among most, with increasingly common foreign and security policy. I'm not saying that that will be a model for the Middle East in its entirety, but I am saying one can learn from what happened in Europe and by increasing interdependency on energy, electricity, the power grid, and also on climate change. For heaven's sake, climate change does not respect borders. Either people will survive and thrive, or people will despair and go under. And the more people realize this, the more those boundaries become irrelevant, and cooperation will replace it. So it's not easy to be optimistic about the Middle East at any moment in time. But I, for one, am not giving up on the Middle East. To the contrary, I believe that there's a path with, with visionary leadership, with courageous leadership, with the help of the United States. And I, I would argue with the help of the European Union, there is a path forward for Israel and the region to, to, to reshape it, to reimagine it in a very positive and peaceful direction. I was first introduced to AJC in 2018 while I was living in Fort Worth. A uh, friend of mine, his uncle, Adam Lampert, was very involved with AJC in Dallas. But I was introduced to your name through your writings, which my mother, Leslie Godoff, frequently forwarded to me over the years. You are an excellent writer you have successfully conveyed some pretty complex complex, uh, complex terms um, to, to me and many. Uh, introduce us to how you think about writing. Is it, is it something you enjoy doing? Has it, how has it evolved over the years? What's your approach? It's funny you ask because um, early on, I, I was a very unenthusiastic writer and I often suffered from writer's block. Um, uh, but I, I came to understand that, um, if, if one is going to enter the field of advocacy, I mean, I, I did not choose to enter the field of, of research. Uh, I chose to become an advocate, if you will, an ambassador, so to speak of, you know, for, for the Jewish people in a post-Holocaust world in which Israel was reborn. 
Um, and I needed to summon all of the possible communication skills in order to reach as many people as I could. And for some people, that was going to be through um, speeches, conferences, panel discussions. Uh, for others, it would be the media, uh, elect uh, radio, TV, and now sort of the new media. And for still others, it was going to be sort of classic writing. Um, first, uh, longer papers, but then increasingly op-eds, blogs. So uh, I discovered that, you know, I, I did enjoy writing. I could overcome writer's block because I felt there was a purpose to the writing. It, 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 it wasn't meant to be a kind of, you know, ego exercise in which I, I'm writing about myself and what I did yesterday and hoping people kind of validate it. I'm writing because it became a tool of advocacy, because I genuinely believe that the, 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 the rebirth of Israel in our lifetimes is nothing short of, of a miracle and nothing short of, of, of celebration, uh, that the campaign to, to, uh, to free Soviet Jews who were, who were held captive by the Soviet regime for decades um, was a historic moment. Uh, the, the desire to protect Holocaust memory from those who would seek to deny the Holocaust or trivialize the Holocaust or minimize or rationalize or contextualize the Holocaust was absolutely essential. For example, in the, um, in the trial in which Professor Deborah Lipstadt found herself uh, uh, in London, uh, uh, having to prove the facts of the Holocaust uh, against her uh, her courtroom foe, the, the the Holocaust denier David Irving. I mean, all of these things, Tyler, to me, were so consequential. They were so high stakes. Uh, this was this was real life. Uh, th this was not something trivial. Or, or marginal, these were life and death issues as I saw them. And again, it meant trying to summon whatever skills I, I, could, I could find as a communicator, both in speaking and in writing. And so that led to hundreds, if not, I've lost count, hundreds and hundreds of articles and blogs everywhere I could place them as part of the advocacy campaign. As you were leading AJC over the 30 years, was there an element of the job in the first, call it five years, that you felt very challenging? And by the end, it was something that you didn't think twice about? Well, lots. <laughs> lots, because um, when AJC offered me the job in 1990, I, I had, and this is not kind of false humility, I, I was not prepared for the job. I did not. I did not seek the job. I, I I ran away from the job. When they offered me the job, it literally took me weeks and weeks of discussion with my wife, and going back and forth, before I finally, very reluctantly, accepted the job. I did not feel ready for it. I had virtually no management experience. I had virtually no fundraising experience. I could barely read a balance sheet. I, I, I had very little HR experience 
or strategic planning experience. So I, I, I honestly and genuinely felt that I was not ready for the job. But AJC persisted. Uh, it was a time of great crisis for the organization. Uh, it was on the brink of going under, literally. Uh, there were those in the media um, who predicted AJC would close its doors forever, this once venerable storied institution. The 1980s had not been kind to AJC. There had been six or seven different professional leaders in the span of a decade or less. Uh, so everything about the job, Tyler, everything about the job uh, scared me, intimidated me. Uh, I wasn't ready. The stakes couldn't have been higher because I, I, I was not getting a, I was not getting a move-in condition apartment. Uh, to, to the contrary, so the first five years, roughly speaking, were were really about on-the-job training, with with no honeymoon, um, because there was no time for a honeymoon if if the organization was potentially going to close its doors, and I had to learn all the elements of the job at once. Uh, I, I had to learn about management. I had to learn about decision-making. I had to learn both about hiring and unfortunately about firing or, or, or retrenching. Um, I had to learn about, about how you uh, revitalize an institution when, 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 when staff are dispirited because they see this once great organization, you know, heading in the wrong direction. When when lay people were uh, at times at each other's throats over who was to blame, who was responsible for, you know, the decline in the 1980s. By the way, all of which were self-inflicted wounds. This, this was internal. Uh, when mission creep replaced kind of crystal clear priorities, uh, all of this had to be learned and dealt with pretty much at one and the same time. So whether it was four years or five years or six years, you know, I can't now say with precision, but the learning curve was about as steep as it comes. Uh, and uh, looking back, <laughs> my last years were a lot less, they were not easy. It, when, when, when a CEO believes the job becomes easy, it's probably time to replace the CEO. Uh, a, C a CEO's job is not meant to be an easy job. It's not meant to be an uncomplicated job. Uh, and, uh, and I also understood that a CEO should never preside over a status quo institution, even once you stabilize the organization. Stabilizing the organization was the first goal. Repurposing the organization was the first goal for me. But when that was accomplished, together with lots of other people who were my partners, my teammates, lay and staff, then the second stage of this was a growth strategy. And not growth for the sake of growth, for the sake of, um, of empire building. But because I, I, I believed that an organization that stands still is an organization that ultimately will wither and die. Uh, it's just like a corporation. I mean, how many corporations have withered and died because, because they didn't understand that as successful as they were in a given moment, there were people in the wings who were thinking already about new models, 
of, 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 of how to entertain people or how to take people from point A to point B or how people would communicate with one another. I mean, just look, look everywhere. Every industry has been revolutionized, you know, not, not just in my lifetime, in your lifetime. And then some, Tyler. And there's just a small age gap between you and me. But, you know, I, for some reason, I'm thinking about places like Blockbusters, which when they first showed up, were hugely successful. Uh, and what happened to Blockbusters? Uh, and just go down the list of all of these corporations that had a successful model, but that couldn't then develop the next stage or couldn't do it in time and didn't see what else was coming. Same, same for me in the NGO world. Sure, at the end of the day, the goals for AJC are the same or for Jewish organizations generally, uh, protecting, preserving um, the Jewish people wherever they may live, ensuring that they have access to equal rights, that the future is ahead of them and not behind them. But how you do it, the methodology has to change because the world around us is changing. And when you asked earlier about writing, I mean, the element of communications and advocacy has changed dramatically. Uh, I, 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 I now love to write op-eds, but the real key is how you use social media. And when you look at, at folks on social media, I mean, again, pick, pick your, you know, <laughs> your favorite poison, but look at celebrities, look at certain political stars, look at the millions and tens of millions of people that they reach. Now you, you may denigrate them because you may say, who cares what they think or uh, what their latest you know, hairstyle looks like. But these are the people who, if they choose to, Tyler, if they choose to announce on social media, I don't know, something like, uh, I love Israel, three words. The impact of those three words on tens of millions of impressionable people goes way beyond. Um, my beloved op-ed, which I hope will be published by a leading newspaper. So got to adapt. And I understood that early on. Plus, I get bored with the status quo. I like the process of thinking and rethinking. I like the world of big ideas. Uh, and I was very lucky throughout my AJC tenure, both to have the, the confidence of the agency but also to have amazing partners, both staff and lay, because no one person, no matter how gifted, can do this alone, nor should do this alone. Far from it. Speaking of your writing, I remember reading a post you wrote about your mother's passing in October 2018, and it was quite moving. And you spoke about her earlier in our interview here, and I hope the tech cooperates and we captured that. But I... Would love if you could talk about some of the lessons that you learned from her that are uh, most enduring, especially as you um, as you go into your next phase, uh, your next chapter. Yeah, I mean, thank you for the opportunity. Um, it's not often I can speak publicly about my mother these days, but um, my mother, Nellie Harris, born Nellie Chender, um, was. Um, was actually from Moscow. Um, 
And uh, I was very close to my mother all her life, um, all my life. Uh, I was an only child. Um, and my mother divorced at an early age after a bad marriage. And um, so my mother and I were thrust together in life for um, a very long time. And I was a beneficiary of a lot of lessons learned. First of all, my mother was uh, resilient. Um, she and her family were able to flee Soviet communism. They arrived in France in 1929. Uh, new start, new language, new school, new everything. Um, but they did it successfully until 1940 when Germany invaded uh, France and the Jews and, and many other French tried to flee the Nazis. Uh, so my mother then was 17 years old and my grandparents, her parents, um, kind of collapsed from the burden of, of, of the second escape and all of the fears and, and, and so forth. So my mother at age 17, together with her brother, who was three years older, really carried the family um, through the, the exodus from Paris, through, through the hiding, through the fear, through the anxiety, through the search for visas. Back to what we spoke about um, earlier in the podcast, Tyler. Uh, my mother going, as she said, from one consulate or embassy to another, pleading, begging for visas to escape. And as she said, being given answers from uh, a slam door to come back in three months or six months, uh, even though she said, we don't have three months, we don't have six months. Uh, but the indifference, the callousness, or for that matter, the sheer greed. Um, if Jews are going to be pleading for their lives, let's see how much we can extract from them. Gold, silver, dollars, paintings, whatever it is, none of which, by the way, my family had. Um, and she arrived in America because eventually they were successful on the eve of Pearl Harbor. Uh, they were able to, to escape France, to Spain, and to Portugal and come across uh, the ocean. And a third start. Tyler, a third start, a new country, a new language, a new culture, uh, new ways of doing things. She was 18 years old. This was her third start and not in a third American city where the language is the same and the food is a, a third start from scratch, from scratch. And my mother proved her resilience again. She went right to work. She learned English on the job. Uh, she had no handouts. And you know what? I learned something else from her besides resilience. She did not live her life as a victim. I learned something else. She loved America. She expected nothing from America because America gave her the one gift and the only gift that she could ask for, safety, a new start. That was it. The rest of her life was lived as in, what can I give back to America? My mother was a proud Jew. For some Jews, the cost of being Jewish was too high uh, in the Hitler era. But my mother never walked away. She lived her life openly as a proud Jew. She was not religious. 
She was not the product of religious education, by the way, nor was I. But she knew who she was, and she was proud. She was a proud Zionist. Uh, her father, my grandfather, would have loved nothing more than to go to then Palestine. Uh, but it, it didn't happen. They, they came where they could find safety. It happened to be in America. But my mother was a very proud Zionist and believer in the state of Israel. Uh, and my mother was a very present mother. And when I became a father to three children, I, I realized that more than the, the books on the shelves trying to teach you parenting, it was really the example of my mother who had to work all her life and who was a divorced mother who never remarried, but who, who never, who never ever uh, missed her role as a mother to me. No, she could never go to the sports events, uh, never, because she was working. And when she wasn't working, she was home preparing dinner. But I never for a moment doubted that my mother was always there for me. She never took a vacation away from me. She never thought about going to Florida or to Arizona or California. And when my children were born, my mother was a present grandmother from day one until the day she passed away. And, and my children knew that in my mother, whom they call babushka, the Russian word for grandmother, she, she would never say no to them. She, she, she was never away from them. Uh, she was always there for them. So, sure, everyone has their imperfections, but on, on the big issues, I learned a hell of a lot from my mother. And I, not only did I, but I think our three adult children who are now themselves parents, if they were on your podcast, Tyler, would tell you how much they learned from their grand grandmother, my mother, because they were blessed to have her in their lives um, for, for, for a very long time. What an incredible life she lived. And those lessons are powerful. And Lador Vador, I'm so thrilled that she successfully passed it down to you and you to your children. I want to wrap up with a few quick fire questions here. And the first is 12 hours in Tokyo. You have no AJC obligations. What are you doing? <laughs> well, for, for the foodies, uh, it's obviously going to be um, going to the best sushi places in Tokyo. And um, you don't need me to tell you where they are. For the sightseers um, and the joggers, it's going to be um, a wonderful five-kilometer run around the Imperial Palace and the gardens. Uh, and th those were two great stars right there and then if you could slip in a visit to kyoto it, it won't happen in the 12 hours but it's a spectacular city which i think captures so much of the soul of japan who is the world youth leader you met who possessed the best sense of humor <laughs> well i'm not sure i can i can i can answer that one um quickly but i will tell you that the world leader who I thought had the most charisma, um, the quickest intelligence, the sharpest mind, and I don't say this in any partisan way, uh, was President Bill Clinton. Clearly flawed in some other parts of his life, 
but I've had the privilege of meeting hundreds, if not thousands of world leaders, American and world leaders. Uh, and and uh, he, he, he totally stands out for, for that kind of natural charisma, his ability to interact with people at multiple levels, but also um, the way his mind worked uh, with, without notes, without depending on staff, um, an absolutely brilliant mind. What is the Yiddish, the Yiddish word you find most useful? Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I love Yiddish words. I love Yiddishisms. I, I, I only wish they would survive among many Jews. And it's interesting because one of my daughters-in-law wrote to me something about, and she said, I hope I'm not being too um, obsequious. And, and I, 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 I was planning to write back to her. In fact, I'll do it now because of your question. Uh, obsequious is a great SAT word, but there's a much better Yiddish word, turn it from an adjective into a verb, uh, and the verb is to schmeichel. Schmeichel. And schmeichel means kind of undue or excessive flattery. You know, as if you're, you know, you're softening up someone for a big ask, like a gift <laughs> or a promotion or something. So you're schmeicheling them. Uh, so that's one of dozens of Yiddish words that I try and salt and pepper my language with because I think those words are irreplaceable. And for, for, for your listeners, there's a classic book called The Joys of Yiddish by Leo Rostin. It must be several decades old, but it's, it, it's a fantastic, and by the way, hysterically funny book because it takes all of these great Yiddish words. Uh, take the word nudnik. You know the word nudnik, Tyler? Turn it into the word fudnik. What's a fudnik? A, a fudnik is a nudnik with a PhD. I love it. And that uh, word for softening someone up, um, say it again. It's a verb. So to, T-O, to create the infinitive, schmeichel. Schmeichel. Well, schmeichel. That, that, that's a new one for my lexicon. Thank you. Last look one up, here. Look up the book, The Joys of Yiddish. I will. I will. The last one here, sour cream or applesauce with your lockies. Uh, of the three, I'll take the applesauce as a standalone because the latkes are, I, I can't eat fried food anymore. <laughs> the idea just kind of, you know, I used to be able to eat all of this stuff. So just give me, just give me the, the, the applesauce as a standalone. I'll be a very happy camper. And I'll cheer on all the people eating the latkes with applesauce and sour cream as a great Jewish tradition. I'm with you in spirit, but I'm not with you in diet. Excellent. David Harris, thank you so much for joining us on Search for DOS. I apologize for the tech hiccups. We'll see what uh, audio we can salvage from the first uh, session. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership over the years and setting a great example for myself and so many other Jewish Americans. My pleasure. It was uh, lots of fun to be with you, Tyler. <laughs>